Well, good morning. I invite you to join with me in prayer. Father, we, uh, throughout the year, but perhaps especially in this month leading up to Christmas, we remember together that you are not a God who remains distant, but that you are a God who draws near. And we thank you that you promise that even now, that as we gather together in your name, you are here with us. You right now hear us as we are praying, and as we hear your word, you are speaking to us. So, Lord, we ask again that your spirit who is here right now would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, that we might see and hear you as you are proclaimed in your word, and that through this we might be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as, as we've already been reminded, we have begun Advent this Sunday, a season in some ways that's especially about kind of preparing the idea of preparing, preparing for the coming of our King. And uh, it is also a season if you uh, are, you know, one who either does Christmas cards or if you receive Christmas cards where we see lots of different words, right? Like, you know, on cards you'll see words like hope and joy and love and goodwill. There's one word that I thought about this week that is conspicuously absent from these cards, and that is repent. Which might seem like a strange thing to say, but... As I think about what the gospel writers, if they wanted to say, here's the Advent card, here's the Advent message, here's the word that you need to understand that's about preparing for the coming of the king, this is the word I think they would choose. You have John the Baptist, his whole role is he is the preparer. He comes to prepare people for the coming, and his message is repent. Which makes me think, you know, our our family has never done Christmas cards, we just never get around to it. But, you know, maybe next year I'll see if I can get, like, a picture of, like, a John the Baptist figure with, like, you know, this kind of, you know, on one side, of course, will be our smiling family. But on the other side, John the Baptist kind of looking crazy with, you know, locust lunch or something like that, and just the word repent, and just send it and see how that goes. Um, I mean, it sounds absurd, right? We know that feels absurd, and the reason is because the word repent has a, a strange connotation. Like, we almost never use that word in normal speaking. Uh, In fact, I think the way that we always associate that word is with some, you know, kind of street preacher who's saying, the end is nigh, repent. And so it always has this really negative, strange connotation. The word repent itself is a fairly simple and, and useful word. It just means a change of direction, specifically a change in our life direction. If, if in our lives you go, you know what, I want to stop being this way, or I want to stop acting this way, I'm going to do this instead, that's repentance. It's a change in life direction. And on one hand, there can be a slightly negative side to that, right, because it's recognizing we don't want that anymore. And that's oftentimes what we think of when we think of repentance, that negative, that feeling of, of remorse. And that's certainly true when the Bible speaks of repentance. But when the Bible speaks of repentance, the, the emphasis is not so much on that part, it's on the other part, what you are turning from, not, sorry, not so much what you're turning from, but what you are turning to. The word repent in the Old Testament could easily and oftentimes is translated return. So Isaiah says to his people, God says to his people in Isaiah, return to me, for I have redeemed you. And that's the idea of repent. Come, come back. I, I, I'm welcoming you home. If you, if you think of Jesus' story of the prodigal son, of this person who has left his father, who has squandered so many things, and then he comes to himself and he recognizes and he decides it's time for me to go back to dad. That's repentance. It is, it's a returning, a, a turning back 
to a loving God. In the New Testament, as, as Jesus comes, he continues that message that John is inviting repentance, and he is saying, I now have the way back. I am the way back. If you come to me, I will bring you back to the Father. It's time to return. And that's, if you might remember, a few weeks ago when we heard Matthew, who was the tax collector, and Jesus comes to him and says, follow me. In that moment, Matthew leaves his former way, and he comes, and he is returning to God and experiencing forgiveness. It is this beautiful idea of returning. And if we can understand it that way, we should recognize that this is what lies at the very foundation of the Christian life. The Christian life is about this returning, this repentance. Whenever someone becomes a Christian, it involves turning from a former way and turning towards God and returning to Him. And even for those of us who may have been Christians for many years, repentance is our way of life. It is daily we recognize, oh, I'm starting to do something I don't want to do. I'm kind of wandering and it's coming back and, and returning to a father that we know loves us and forgives us. The life of a Christian is a life of ongoing repentance. And I bring all of this up because, not only because it's Advent, which I do think it's, it's in some ways the right time to think about that as we kind of prepare for the idea of Jesus coming. But it's also something that is, that is underneath, that is underlying the passage that we have before us. In fact, the next few weeks in this Advent season, I'm going to want to consider this idea of repentance with you. And, and this morning, I actually just want to make a, a really simple, modest point. And that is that in our passage that we have this morning, we have a reason why we should repent. There are many good reasons for repentance, sometimes an awareness that we don't like the way we used to be, sometimes an awareness of, the, of what's before us is better. But, but what we actually have here is the statement that the reason that we should repent is because God has done something absolutely remarkable. The reason we should repent is because of something that has happened in history. When John preaches about repentance, when Jesus preaches about repentance, they say repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because something spectacular is going on. That is, it's not just about feeling. It's not just about desire. It's about something that is real. Now, to understand kind of what what they're talking about, it's, it's, it's worth backing up, and we've done this a couple times, so I'm going to do this again, and, and, and to recognize that hundreds of years before, the, the, the different Old Testament prophets who were living in different places at different times were given kind of consistently this awareness. God opened their eyes to recognize that there would be a future day coming where God was going to do something spectacular. A day that they sometimes refer to as the day of the Lord. Day not meaning like 24 hours, but you know, in my day, like a period. See, in the, in the time of the prophets, the prophets sometimes are feeling like God is distant. Israel is disobedient. People are experiencing negative things. But God says, just wait. There is going to be a day that comes that I am going to come and I'm going to make things right. And I will do it by bringing things to a time of crisis. 
God, in this day of the Lord, two things we see side by side taking place. On one hand, because God is making things right, it says he will judge evil. He will undo injustice. He will judge the evildoer because that's the only way to make things right. And yet, at the same time, we also see that God says, and I will bring forgiveness. And I will save all of those who cry out to me, and I will make their lives filled with joy. Two things, judgment upon the evildoers, and yet salvation and forgiveness to those who cry out to him. And the dividing line, the deciding factor between the two is repentance. God says, I will save all those who turn to me. I will forgive all those who call out to me. All who turn from their lives to me, I will rescue. And those who don't, those who refuse, will experience judgment. Just one example of this repeated theme in, um, in this Speaking of the day of the Lord, we have in, in the book of Isaiah. Um, we looked at Isaiah last year, and perhaps you even remember this passage. This is from Isaiah 35. God says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come. He will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. This is the judgment language. He will come to judge evil. And it also says, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute shout for joy. There is that language of salvation, of rescue, vengeance, and yet rescue. These two things in this moment of crisis. Now, Isaiah says just a few chapters later that to prepare for that day of the Lord, for that moment of the crisis, God will send a prophet. Do you remember a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, one who readies people by calling them to repent. And then after this preparation happens, God will bring this day of the Lord about through his appointed king. It's something we heard about again and again in Isaiah. We heard about it actually just a few weeks ago when Randy Neighbors was preaching on Isaiah 61. Do you remember that passage? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And, and what is that good news? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor salvation, and the day of vengeance of our God, judgment. The king will come to bring about this moment of crisis where there is both judgment and forgiveness, and the deciding factor will be repentance. Now, I bring up all of this prophetic expectation hundreds of years before the passage that we're looking at today because the very clear conviction that underlies all of Matthew 11, all of the book of Matthew, is that the day of the Lord has come through the coming of Christ Jesus. That John the Baptist is that person who will prepare the way, and that Jesus is that king who is bringing about this moment of crisis where God is stepping in and making things different. And, and we see this, for example, in the way that, that Jesus speaks of John the Baptist. So, uh, part of the way through our passage where John the Baptist, he has sent some messengers and the messengers leave and then Jesus takes a moment and he wants to talk to the crowd about John the Baptist. And he says, 
when you went out in the middle of the desert, because remember, John the Baptist was about 20 miles away from Jerusalem. They had to trudge through wilderness, go over a river. They had to work hard to get there. When you did that journey, why did you go there? Was it just so that you could see the nature? No. Was it just so that you could see some sort of fancy man? No. Why, Jesus says, did you go all of that way? And, and, and they all knew the answer, because you knew that this man was a prophet, you could tell from the very way that he spoke that he had come from God. And let me tell you what I think you already know deep down, Jesus is saying. He is not just the prophet. He was the one to come. He is the one that was spoken of ahead of time. He's the one to prepare the way of the Lord. Malachi spoke of this Elijah-like figure. He is that person that was sent to prepare for the day of the Lord. And Jesus is saying this because there is an obvious implication. If John the Baptist was the one who was sent to prepare, that means Jesus is the one who has brought about the day of the Lord. Jesus is that king, long foretold. So, the reason I want to start here is just, again, there, there's a simple claim that we should recognize the reason for repentance, because again, the message is repent for the kingdom of hand, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The reason that we are called to repent is based on history. The reason we are told this is what we need to do is because of something that took place. Christianity is not something that we are invited, to, we're not invited to follow Jesus just because that is the tradition of our parents, and so we just want to continue on with them. Following Jesus is not about just preference, where there's something about it that seems right to us and inspiring, and we want to do it. No, when we're told, here's why you follow Jesus, because something huge has happened. And so, it will all depend on what we think. Do we believe this took place? Do we believe that John the Baptist actually is this forerunner, this preparer? Do we believe that Jesus is someone who has come from God, who has initiated the day of the Lord? If the answer is no, then there is no reason for us to be here this morning. Because Christianity is not just about good feeling. It is about something that happens. But if the answer is yes, if, if John and Jesus really are who Matthew say they are, then there is only one response that is right, and that is for us to repent and to return to God. Our passage is raising the question, do, what do you believe about John? What do you believe about Jesus? How you answer that question and what you do with that answer will be what determines your life. So Matthew lays this out, but it, he doesn't just help us to understand that this is the claim of Jesus and John the Baptist. He also provides evidence for us for why we should believe these things really are the case. And interestingly, the, the evidence actually begins in an interesting interaction with John the Baptist. Perhaps you noticed this at the very beginning of our passage. John is now in prison. And what is he doing? He is sending his disciples, and they are asking Jesus a question, a question that reveals that John is struggling. 
And John, maybe was not anticipating having to go through the, the, the challenges that he's going through. Maybe he anticipated things to work better. But whatever the reason is, it says he sent out these messengers. And the messengers came to Jesus asking on John's behalf, Are you the one who is to come or should we wait for someone else? Are you, the, are you the king who is bringing about the day of the Lord? Because it doesn't feel like it yet. So is there someone else that we should wait for? And, and notice how Jesus responds. I, I'm struck by this. Jesus doesn't say, come on, John, believe me. Come on, John, you know. No, he, he actually, he invites John and his disciples to take a look at the evidence. He says, tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. And, and what have they seen and what have they heard? Jesus reminds them, this is, you, you know this, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Now that should sound familiar to us. I mean, remember Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shout for joy. Remember Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus says, John, take a look and see. And if you've been following us through the study of Matthew, we have been invited to see. In fact, perhaps now we're beginning to recognize that Matthew has been laying out story after story so that we can draw those same conclusions. Do you remember? We have seen Jesus touching the eyes of blind men and people who had never seen before suddenly seeing. Do you remember the paralytic who was laid down before Jesus and Jesus saying, Get up, take up your mat, and walk. And suddenly this person is able to walk. We might remember that the demon-possessed person, Jesus, casting the demon out. There's even a moment where Jesus comes to this young girl who has just died, and he raises her from the dead. There is so much there, and if we just, if we just bring it all together and look at what we have seen through the eyes of Matthew, it is it's spectacular. Is there any other conclusion that we can draw than that this is a work of God? When we understand the Old Testament prophets, is there any other conclusion that we can draw than this is God accomplishing what he said he would do, initiating this great day of the Lord? Jesus says, look at the evidence. Now, even as we talk about questions of evidence, and, and even as we're invited to weigh it, inevitably I think there's a question that occurs to us. Can we actually even really trust Matthew, right? Where Matthew is showing us, and if Matthew, if what Matthew is saying is true, then it seems pretty obvious, but, but how can we be sure? And I think that's a really good question. There's a, a book called Can We Trust the Gospels by a Cambridge professor by the name of Peter Williams. And if this is something that you find yourself kind of wondering and wanting to know more about, I invite you. It's a short book, easy to read, and it's really useful. Right now, let me just kind of summarize a couple of things that he says. See, if we are trying to ask the question of whether we can trust Matthew, 
I suppose the two possibilities that we're worried about is either that Matthew is working with bad information or he's working with bad motives. Either he's just not being accurate because he just doesn't know stuff, or maybe he might not be accurate because he wants to trick us. So, so let's deal first with the question of the information that he has. One of the things that is impressive about, about these four Gospels that we have is just how early they were written. They were probably written over a span of about 30 years, and most people date the first of them, Mark, to around 65 AD. 65 AD. Jesus ascended probably around 33 AD, so we're talking about 32 years after Jesus was on earth was when the first gospel was written. 32 years ago actually isn't that long, if you think about it, at least for me. I, 32 years ago, I was a freshman in high school. I can remember that. I, I mean, I certainly would remember if in the freshman year of high school, someone had healed someone who was blind or raised the dead. And, and my point is that when Matthew and Mark and Luke and John are constructing their narratives, they have first-hand accounts. People who were there, probably hundreds if not thousands, they had the information. This is not a legend written centuries later. This is the stuff of memory. Also related to this, one of the things that's impressive about the Gospels are, are the details that we have. So if I were to try to, say, construct some sort of account of something that, say, happened in, in Idaho in the 80s, I guarantee I would try to have as few details as possible because I just don't know much about Idaho. I certainly wouldn't know the names of towns. I probably wouldn't know the name of bit player people. But when you look through the Gospels, what do you notice? You notice towns like Chorazin, Bethsaida, small towns that no one has heard of before. You, you notice little details like how people from Jericho are going up to Jerusalem, because they are. They're going up a hill. You, you see names of people like Simon of Cyrene that no one would know about unless they were there. What you have here with all of these details, sometimes that don't even seem important, is clearly the sense that the people who are writing about this are the people who knew that area, who knew that time, that they are first-hand accounts. We have here evidence of people having the information that they needed. But you might say, okay, even if Matthew lived in that time, even if Matthew knew that area, how do we know that Matthew didn't just kind of exaggerate things to kind of move his cause forward. And here's where that question of maybe he had bad motives. And, and the thing is, if that's the case, I can almost promise you that this is not what Matthew would have written. Because the thing about all of the gospel accounts is the surprising number of embarrassing details that they include. So in that day, someone who is heroic is someone who is fearless, who is strong, who never has any sign of weakness. And what do we see about Jesus? We see Jesus weeping before death. We see Jesus tired as he sits by the well. We see Jesus praying and, and, and saying he is overwhelmed at the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and when Jesus rises from the dead, who were the first people who are the witnesses? Women who in that day were not considered reliable, and yet they are the first-hand witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And think about the people who are the leaders of the church after Jesus, the disciples. If you wanted to make this movement go well, you would make those disciples awesome. And yet, how do we see the leaders of the church portrayed? You have one who betrays Jesus. You have one who denies Jesus three times. You have people who keep on getting the things over and over again wrong. This is an embarrassing story of the disciples. The only reason you'd have all of these things 
is if you had people who are so committed to the truth that they would say it even if it shamed them. What I'm trying to say is if you look, if you just step back and look at the quality of the account, the age of the account, the details, what's included, you have every evidence that what Matthew is telling us is true. And if what Matthew is telling us is true, if this man, Jesus, really did heal the blind and raise the dead and give strength to the lame, then the day of the Lord has come. And now is the time to repent. Now is the time where God says, come back to me through Jesus. Come and experience my forgiveness before it is too late. Now, the tragic reality is that even with all of this, even with all of this truth that is before us that seems unmistakable, it is an entirely possible thing not to respond in repentance. And the reason I say that is because that's what we see in our passage. At the very end of our passage, perhaps you notice that Jesus is pronouncing these words of woe. And to say woe is, is this words of grief saying bad things are going to happen, and it breaks my heart. That's the sense. And he's talking about these four or these three different cities. Woe to you. And what's the reason? He says, because you have seen all of these miracles, and yet you have not repented. Think about that. This is not just a group of towns that are having to rely on Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. These are towns where they saw Jesus do these things. We saw, they saw people they knew had been paralyzed for years suddenly walking for the first time. They had all the evidence that they needed. And yet, when push came to shove, even still, they did not repent. Why? I think the reason that we see in a number of ways in our passage is there is a difference between having enough reason to follow Jesus and having enough to feel confident in following Jesus. There's a difference between having enough reason to follow Jesus and having enough reason to feel confident in following Jesus. There is a difference. We, we first notice this difference in John the Baptist, right? We've already said John the Baptist, he goes and he sends these people and he's, he's confused about what's going on. And the thing is, Jesus says, look, this hasn't changed. You, you hear. Here are the miracles. Here are the things that have happened. I'm preaching good news to the poor. Look at the truth. And yet, for John, the reason he's confused is it doesn't feel like it right now. He's in prison. It's dark. He doesn't feel like he's on the side of triumph. There is the object of reality and there's the way things feel for John, and there seems to be a gap. The same thing is happening with the crowds, these people from these different towns. Do you notice Jesus has this kind of strange part where, where he's, he's talking about the crowds, and he says, what shall I compare this generation to? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates this silly song. We played a flute for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge. You did not mourn. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, when John came, John the Baptist came, he came with intensity. He came, 
He came saying, look, things are not okay. Look, we need to repent. Look, we need to get ready. And, and people respond to John saying, lighten up. I mean, that's what Jesus is talking about. We played a little happy tune and you're not dancing. Come on, John, you need to kind of be a little bit more cheerful maybe. And honestly, if I think about what it would have been like to have met John and see that kind of level of intensity, I would not be surprised if I'm like, man, this, is, this guy's a bit much for me. Now, my reaction would actually have not said anything about whether John was the figure to prepare the way or not. It just would have been something that felt off. Then when Jesus comes, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is having parties with tax collectors. He's enjoying time with the lowest of society. And so people are like, Jesus, you need to be not quite so cheerful. We're trying to play this kind of funeral dirge, but you're not weeping. Come on, you need to be more serious about things. And while it's easy to judge people for being like that, think about it. If all of your life has been stressed this idea that you need to recognize your mistakes, you need to work really hard at things, and suddenly Jesus says, you're forgiven if you trust. You're forgiven. It just feels like he's throwing out forgiveness like it's free. There might be the sense like, this guy is maybe a little much. But just because it felt that way didn't change the reality that he was healing the blind, that he was healing the sick, that he was the king who was promised. There is always going to be a difference between being given enough reason to follow Jesus and being given enough to feel confident in following Jesus. And we feel it today, don't we? I mean, we know, we have friends that we, we trust and respect who have no faith in Christ, no desire to follow him. And, and and it's hard to know, like, uh, how can we be so confident that this is right when these other people completely disagree? Now, if you think about it, there's nothing about that that changes the reality. If Jesus really is who he says he is, it doesn't matter how people feel about things. That doesn't change the truth. And yet, to have people think differently, it, it, it makes it feel less confident. Or we know how it can sometimes feel like God isn't real. It's hard to feel sometimes that, that God is involved in our day-to-day -day interaction. Again, those things don't change what is true, but it does change how we feel about it. And that, I think, is the failure of the people of Chorazin and, and Capernaum and Bethsaida. They allowed how they felt in the moment, their personal reactions to Jesus, cloud their perspective in recognizing what's truly taking place. They didn't allow themselves to see that God was doing something extraordinary. But we don't have to make that same mistake. We don't have to follow our own feelings. I mean, anyone who's had any experience realized we get our feelings wrong all the time. We, we feel like something's a great idea and it's terrible. We feel like we're going to fail and we succeed. People who've been in marriages for years will feel like they just have no more love and then they keep going and then there's love again. If we follow our feelings, we keep on making mistakes and we don't have to. We can follow what is true. And the truth is that John the Baptist really was a prop from God. The truth is that Jesus really did the things that the Gospels tell us, that people who could not see suddenly could see, that people who could not move suddenly leapt for joy. Jesus truly did die, and he rose again, 
And by doing so, he invites us to a way to return back to God. And if we see that, the only right response, whether it is for the first time or whether it is our ongoing lifestyle, is with joy to repent and turn to Christ.